So today we're, we're starting Galatians. Galatians is a rather unique letter, um, and I'll get into that. And we're not going to read a bunch. I'm just, just starting on the first verse, just talking a bit about the first verse, giving you kind of an introduction to what the letter was all about. It's just a letter of six chapters. So it's fairly short, but um, we'll be in it for quite a while because so, it's so rich. John Wesley wrote, The scriptures, therefore, of the Old and New Testaments are a most solid and precious system of divine truth. Every part is worthy of God, and all together are one entire body, wherein is no defect and no excess. It's the fountain of heavenly wisdom, which they are able to taste, prefer, to all the writings of men, however wise, learned, or holy. I believe that. I hope you do too. That, and if you do, you will make God's word your life study and your direction and your guidance for life. Your inspiration. I can always tell when the spirit of God has captured someone's heart because they have an insatiable hunger for the word of God. And if you're in Christ and you don't have that hunger, uh, let me tell you just a short testimony. Um, I was 19 years old. I was on a hill doing like uh, kind of like a night watchman kind of thing with one other brother. And we were sitting in an old uh, car. It was the body of a car. The seat was still in it. And we were doing our guard duty. And the brother began quoting Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night showeth forth knowledge. And you, the whole psalm. And we're looking at the stars, and, I, and I'm going, wow, this is awesome. And so at that day, I began praying, Lord, give me a hunger. I was already in Christ, but I didn't have that hunger to memorize, to learn, to really know God's word. I, and I prayed, God, give me that kind of hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus calls it, in the Beatitudes. I prayed and asked God for that hunger, and he gave it to me. And, you know, sometimes my old nature wants to be a little lazy and not do all that he prompts me to do. And so it, was, it took years before I finally started yielding to that prompting to memorize more and to really... To, to live in the word of God. And man, I can tell you, it is a huge blessing. And I hope it is for all of you. The modern preaching, though, of taking a verse out of context and, and preaching an a unrelated message on self-help is what's really impoverishing our country today. There, there's so much preaching that's just uh, feel-good preaching, and uh, this is how you can live a better life, and this is how you can be happy, and five steps to a better marriage, and so forth. Instead of preaching the Word of God, that people don't, there's a famine. Uh, one of the minor prophets said there would come a time when there's a famine for hearing the Word of God, and it's not because we don't have the Word of God. Almost every house has a Bible or two or ten in it. It's because we don't pick it up and read it. Pastor Todd Wilson writes in his commentary on Galatians, from Genesis to Revelation, the word of God is a treasure trove of grace, golden coins of comfort, 
costly pearls of assurance, precious jewels of promise, are all found in the pages of Scripture. In fact, everything that was written in the Bible was written for us that, through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. You know, many men have inspiring thoughts. Those thoughts from those men were very inspiring. I hope that my devotionals and preaching through the Bible series is inspired, but only to the extent that it helps you understand God's revelation in the Holy Scriptures. There is a world of difference between inspired thoughts and the Word of God. Let me say that again. There is a world of difference between inspired thoughts and the Word of God. My words will pass away, but the Word of God is flawless forever settled in the heavens. And that's why we go through books of the Bible verse by verse, studying the scriptures, trying to understand what God's saying to us through his inspired word. Luther was one of the spiritual giants in, in the church's history who was transformed by the book of Galatians. He taught it in Catholic seminary, and, and what it taught him just kept stirring in him and challenging him to look at things differently than the way he'd been taught. And until his last days, he was adding to and editing his commentary on the book of Galatians. In that commentary that he was writing, he tells us, the world bears the gospel a grudge because the gospel condemns the religious wisdom of the world. Jealous for its own religious views, the, the world in turn charges the gospel with being subversive and licentious doctrine, offensive to God and man, a doctrine to be persecuted as the worst plague on earth, he wrote. And we can see that today in our culture, can't we? That, that grudge against the word of God just seems to be growing and growing. You can talk about every far-out religious idea and be tolerated, but if you bring up the biblical Jesus, all of a sudden there's this resistance, and often we're immediately judged as unworthy of being heard. In Jewish culture, the, the worldly religious wisdom of the day was that keeping the laws of God was the only way of salvation. Yeah, you had to be born a Jew, that was a big big plus, and you probably get to heaven if you're born a Jew, but if you're a Jew, you obey the word. You obey the 613 laws that God gave to Moses. And Paul's letters are teaching us that the word of God never declared that was the case. He was saying, basically, you, you, you're Jews, your whole hour, because he was a Jew, our whole religious system has gotten off track. Salvation was always by grace through faith, an unmerited gift made possible by the sacrifice of Jesus. Those before Christ were to look forward in faith, in faith in God providing the perfect atoning sacrifice. And those after Christ look back on what Jesus accomplished for us in the cross. This letter to the Galatians was to respond to this false teaching that had seeped into the churches of Galatia, um, a teaching uh, probably from Jews, Messianic Jews, Jews that had come to trust that, that Jesus 
was God's Messiah, but they insisted that the Gentile believers needed to become fully Jews first before they could truly know God. In other words, they had to be circumcised, they had to follow the laws of Moses to be accepted by God. That what Jesus did was great and wonderful, but they needed to do more. And though, the, though followers of Jesus, they still believed that their obedience to the laws of God earned merit with God somehow. And, but Paul realized that if we've broken one law, it's as if we had broken them all. Adam and Eve only needed to disobey once to be separated from God. He only gave them one command. They broke that one command and they were separated from God. Sin separates us from God. Sin is falling short of the righteousness of God and God, God cannot abide the presence of unrighteousness. His love for what is good necessitates his abhorrence of what is evil. You know, sometimes people say, well, God's so strict, he's so severe. Yes, because he's so good, because he loves what is good. And if you love what is good, you hate what is evil. His love for what is good necessitates his an abhorrence of evil, and there is no compromise between the two. If we're granted any sense of the righteousness of God, if we were talking about this earlier in the, in the Bible study, that somehow, some way, God opens our hearts and our minds to realize the difference, the, the, well, maybe I can describe it um, in Isaiah chapter six. In Isaiah chapter five, Isaiah was, he thought he was the awesome prophet of God and he was pronouncing woe on everybody. Woe to you who drink wine until late in the night. And woe to you who add house to house, trying to become wealthy in just this world. And woe to you, and woe to you, and woe to you. And in chapter 6, the king dies. He goes into the temple, and he has a revelation of God. He sees a manifestation of God. And he falls on his face and says, I've become unwoven. That, that's what that word means in Hebrew, the Greek word undone. It means my, my threads are all falling apart. I, I, I'm just disintegrated in the presence of this holy God. He hears these angelic creatures around the throne singing in these indescribable voices that shake the whole temple. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Somehow God gives us that revelation that we are so far from that. And when we have that revelation, we are kind of like Isaiah where, where we realize we need God to intervene some way in our life. Though followers of Jesus, these Messianic Jews still believed their obedience was somehow earning. They hadn't had that revelation yet that only God can save. And so his love for what is good necessitates abhorrence of evil and judgment on evil. So if we get that sense of the righteousness of God, 
we're kind of like that. Uh, you remember when the religious leaders took the adulterous woman before Jesus? And they said, the law says you have to stone her. What do you say, friend of sinners? And Jesus bends down and quietly writes on the ground. And then he looks up at them and says, if any one of you is without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. And we realize, like those wise men did, <laughs> we have no right to cast a stone. And we drop our rocks and say, what am I doing? And we're like that rich young ruler. You know, he came to Jesus and he said, what do I have to do to be saved? I want to know how I can have eternal life, good master. And Jesus says, sell all that you have and give to the poor and follow me. Because he had another God. His God was his wealth. And suddenly that light of conviction that I'm talking about hit him and he realized God was not first, that he had an idol in material wealth. And he went away sad. But the legalists believed that at least their good works made them closer to being accepted by God. There's a word for that. Pride. And pride is the greatest sin. In our culture, the grudge against the Bible comes from those who insist that God is love and that there's a million ways to get to him. They abhor the narrow nature of Christ alone in a final judgment. And it's kind of the opposite of Paul's opponents who wanted the way to be narrower. Do you see what I'm saying? Paul's opponents said, yeah, Jesus and the law and be circumcised and do everything just right and you get to heaven. But today, the, the abhorrence of the gospel comes from people that say, no, let everybody in. It doesn't matter what you're like. It doesn't matter what you do. God is love and whatever path you decide to take, come on in. All are welcome. In faith, is faith in Christ enough? Is it too narrow? Paul tells us it's wide enough for all, but that faith in Christ is required. Faith that God gave us the way, that God provided. It's wide enough for all in that Christ died for all who will receive him. But it's narrow in that it requires us to humble ourselves and realize it's only what Jesus did in our behalf that can save us. Only his righteousness is acceptable to God. And it can be ours as his precious gift to us. Those who taught against Paul's doctrine of faith alone were really persuasive. And they did, Galatia is a, a southern Turkey, and Paul and um, Barnabas had, had planted those churches. But these guys that have come in after Paul were teaching that Paul's, not, Paul's kind of a renegade. You know, I mean, he's not, he wasn't there with the 12. He didn't see Jesus. Um, he persecuted the church. Uh, he probably never saw Jesus preach. Merit through works is appealing to our old nature. We would like to think we can be good enough for God. 
depending on our religious routines, is much easier than a moment-by-moment heart relationship with God. You know, just going through, I know what to do. I, I don't cuss. I come to church on Sunday. I tithe. I do this. I do this. You know, I drive nice. Well, most of us do. Some of us don't. <laughs> and we think if we do all those good things, God's going to be happy. That's, that's all we need to do. No. That's not what the Bible's talking about. It's talking about God who wants to build a personal relationship with us, who wants us to know in our hearts deeply how greatly he loves us and to love him in a similar way in return for him to be our greatest love. But that's why things like uh, Islam is so successful. Do the five pillars of Islam and you'll probably not for sure, but probably get to heaven, they say. This persuasive resistance to the gospel of grace is one of the reasons Paul is so firm in the way he addresses the situation in this letter. Jerome, um, Jerome lived, I think, in the fourth century and translated the Bible from the original languages into Latin, gave his life to translate the word of God into the language of that particular day. And he once said that when he read the letters of the Apostle Paul, he could hear thunder. Nowhere in the Pauline corpus, in all the letters of Paul, is such stormy dissidence more evident than in the epistle to the Galatians. This is Paul's fieriest letter and that's because he wanted people to, he wanted those churches he planted to understand that your works have nothing, nothing to do with your salvation. Most of his letters start, Paul's letters start with some complimentary words, some thanks, some uh, to the recipient, some words of edification. But this letter alone is, is unique in that the greeting gets right to the issue. We'll see it within the first few verses. Paul and Barnabas had planted those churches in the southern Galatia region on their first missionary journey. Um, there's a lot of debate about when the letter was written. I kind of think it's somewhere between 42 and 46 AD, uh, right around the time of the council, first Jewish council meeting with Paul that we read about in Acts 15. Uh, could have been a little later. We don't know. People argue about this, but it's not, it's not really that important. The important thing is Paul planted these churches. He had a heart for them. Verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul knew what Jesus taught the disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit that will last. Uh, Paul was on his way to persecute Christians when God called him to be an apostle, somewhere between 33 and 35 AD. In other words, within a few years of Jesus' crucifixion. The glorified risen Christ met a man named Saul, whose name was changed to Paul, on his way to arrest and, and uh, imprison Christians 
for their faith. His miraculous experience of conversion was the reason that he could emphasize that his call was from God and not from man. Was Paul hinting by these words that the apostles' choice of Matthias taking the place of Judas was chosen by men? Jesus did tell the apostles to wait in Jerusalem for power from on high, but instead of waiting, Peter went ahead and led the disciples to pick another apostle to take Judas' place. And I was of the opinion that that this was the case, that maybe Peter jumped the gun instead of waiting for the Holy Spirit. And only as I was studying for this letter did I read another commentator who had the same opinion. So I felt really good about that. (laughs) I was very encouraged because I hadn't, up to that time, I hadn't heard anybody say that. However, that is an opinion, okay? That's just my opinion and this other commentator. We don't know for sure. What we do know for sure is the apostle Paul was an apostle. In other words, someone officially called to represent Jesus, just like the twelve. The false teachers had apparently downplayed Paul's role in contributing in, in, and contradicted his teaching. Paul's declaration that his apostleship was directly from Jesus and God the Father is asserting his place as a legitimate apostle on par with the 11 who Jesus originally chose. These false teachers, who he refers to as super apostles, knew scripture and they were per, per, persuasive. But they, he's kind of hitting, they are self-ordained, not called by Jesus and the Father like he is. Paul's conversion was an unexpected supernatural rebirth. He writes that it was as if he was born at the wrong time. That turnaround from persecutor to evangelist was a powerful witness to Jews of that time and even hard for the church to believe. Barnabas had to be the go-between between for Paul and the apostles to let them know his conversion was genuine because they were afraid it might be a trick. It's a testimony today to skeptics. Many have tried to explain away Paul's radical conversion, but their arguments are really unconvincing. We first read of Paul and Barnabas establishing the churches in Galatia in Acts 16. And then in 18, he returned to the region to strengthen the disciples there. And sometime right after that first or second visit, Paul received word that the Galatians had been influenced by these legalistic false teachers that are often referred to, and you'll hear me say this word sometimes, as Judaizers. In other words, they're Christians, but they want people to act, Christians to act like Jews. So they call them Judaizers. These are teachers who insist that Christians needed to become Jews and follow the Jewish laws to be fully accepted by God. And the Galatians seem to have swallowed that teaching hook, line, and sinker. We'll see that in the coming weeks, how they, Paul was, was saying, I, I'm just amazed, I'm shocked that you were so quickly turned from the gospel of grace to this gospel of works. They set aside the wonder of grace and turned to the law. 
And now this whole thing this, that's taking place when this letter is written is about 25, 20 to 25 years after Jesus ascended. So some of the people who personally knew Jesus would be around. Some of, a few of the apostles were still alive. Adding required works to what Jesus did for us is all too common today. Maybe you've heard someone tell you, Oh, you're a Christian, but do you do this? You know, fill in the blank. Do you street witness? Do you tithe? Do you whatever, right? We could put all kinds of things in the blank. Do you, do you give to charities? Do you minister to the homeless? Do you, people put these requirements on what it means to be a Christian, adding to what Jesus did. It's very difficult issue because faith results in a change in life and good works do follow. Faith without works is dead, but good works do not earn you merit with God. The seduction of the law for the Gentiles and for us is that obeying legal demands is so much easier than having that personal relationship we talked about earlier. That's one reason cults are so successful. The leader says, just follow me. I'll tell you what God is asking of you. All you have to do is obey. And it takes all the burden off us to have that relationship. Sheep are always seeking a shepherd. Look at the relationship in marriage. Wouldn't marriage be easier if all you had to do was obey a few rules? Those of you who are married. What if your, guys, what if your wife says to you, uh, honey, if you will just earn a, a fair, decent living and wash the dishes three times a week and play with the kids half an hour every weekday and an hour on Saturday and Sunday, I'll be totally, oh, and vacuum once a week, I'll be totally satisfied with you. Or vice versa, what if, what if right? Guys told the women, whatever it is, what kind of a relationship would that be? Uh-oh, some of you are saying that's, that's how our marriage works. <laughs> it's just a relationship of convenience instead of love, instead of doing things for one another out of the heart, which is what God is after. See, the law is trying to get people in a box of just doing ABC and missing out on that relationship. Your good works or rules may be acted on without in good, good intent, may be acted on with good intentions, but how wrong our good intentions can be. Having been called in such a radical manner, Paul knew he couldn't trust himself. He needed to always look to the Spirit of God. He needed resurrection life to do the impossible task of officially representing the one he had been persecuting. God raised Jesus from death, and he can apply the same power to raise us from our spiritually dead condition and give us life now in him. And it's essential that we realize that his grace reached out to us and chose us. 
Just as our salvation was dependent completely on God, so our service to him must be completely dependent on his resurrection life in us. The churches of Galatia had been visited by these false apostles who challenged Paul's authority and his teaching that salvation is by grace alone. And they were trying to get the Gentile converts to re rely on keeping the laws of Moses to be saved. But in doing so, they thought they could fit in both with the Jewish world and the Christian world. And, and that way, you don't get persecuted by the Jews. In fact, you can get honored by the Jews for bringing in converts. They were trying to have it both ways. Yeah, it's all by grace, all by faith, and keeping the laws of Moses, Jews. They were avoiding the persecution that Paul was facing. I imagine many of them had been Pharisees who, who joined the Christian community and so honored the laws of God and, and couldn't let them go. Paul answered their challenge by reminding the Galatians that Jesus called him on the road to Damascus. An apostle is the appointed representative of someone with authority. More, It's more than a messenger. And, the word messenger in Greek is angelos, where we get our word angel. Apostle is higher. It's a more official calling than a messenger. It's, it's one who totally represents the authority from which he came. And Paul was appointed by Jesus just as the other apostles were. Only his calling was after the ascension. Maybe that makes it even more official because it was the glorified Christ who called him. Now, it's equally important, but they were to be witnesses of the resurrected Lord Jesus. Paul's encounter with Jesus enabled him to do the same. And notice that Paul said his calling was not from man, but from Jesus, and that implies that Jesus is more than man. He is divine. Do you see that? That doesn't mean Jesus was not human, but rather Paul is stating that Jesus is as fully God is as the Father. There's a false doctrine permeating the church today. It comes from liberal theologians who think their insights are so intelligent and fair-minded that they can disagree with the apostle that the resurrected Jesus chose. They say things like, well, Paul said this because of his cultural biases. Or uh, this was his own personal axe to grind, but we're more enlightened today. What they're in fact saying is that God made a mistake in appointing Paul. It implies God was not able to watch over the development of Scripture. And that makes us the apostles then who pick and choose according to our likes and personal preferences and subjective opinions. And this is why we have so many cafeteria Christians. I'll have some of that uh, dessert in 1 John, but none of that meat in John chapter 6. Thank you. And none of the vegetables over there in that uh, book of Revelation. Yuck. If some teaching of Scripture offends people, they just reject it. So they won't be rejected by the world. That's usually the reason they reject it is their present culture doesn't like what it says. The present culture is passing people. 
Jesus declared that nothing from God's word would ever pass away. And if we have trouble with a passage, the problem's not in the word of God, it's in us. Pray and see what God's showing you. And if needed, ask someone to help you understand the passage. An apostle speaks in the place of the one who sent him. He spoke and wrote with the authority of Jesus. And the few times Paul gives his own opinion, he says so right in the letter. This is my personal opinion, not the Lord. Peter even declared Paul's letters are scripture. So if you're going to reject Paul, you need to reject Peter as well. And that's why we decided to put Bible in the name of our church. Some of you don't know, but we used to just be Wayside Chapel. But people would keep calling and say, you know, asking about weddings or having mass. <laughs> so we put Bible in the middle because we're all about God's word. And those calls stop. <laughs> if you don't believe it's the word of God, then in effect you make the entire book questionable and of no value to transform your life. Paul preaches the gospel in the very first verse, only in this letter, by saying that he was called by the one who raised Jesus from the dead. In a later letter, Paul declares that Jesus was raised for our justification. In other words, the resurrection proves his sacrifice was accepted by God as a payment for our sins. And if that's the case, why are these false teachers insisting that a person must be circumcised and keep the laws of Moses? What right does anyone have to tell you that a certain act can add to what Jesus did on the cross? Salvation is by faith in Jesus plus nothing. He paid it all. Hallelujah. You know, if it wasn't, we'd be constantly looking introspectively and going, did I goof? Did I fail? What, where am I at with God today? You don't have to do that, brothers and sisters. The person named Jesus of Nazareth who ministered with the disciples for three and a half years was more than a rabbi, a guru, or a great teacher or philosopher. God was manifest in human form. That puts his words and a calling on our lives on a whole different level from that of man. What Jesus said is infinitely more authoritative than what any human has ever said. Any human. Jesus told the Jews that they should listen to him because he said, I am from above. He's the only man worthy of worship. In the first verse of Galatians, Paul has emphasized his authority from God to represent Jesus in the way he's worded the verse. We can see that Jesus is more than man. He's not a highly evolved man or a person who, after lifetimes, attained a more enlightened state of being. He was miraculously conceived, born without a sin nature, lived the only sinless life to ever live in this world, and died in our place to satisfy the justice of God. And he did that because he was seeking a bride. And to be his bride, she needed to be holy and without blemish. And that's what the miraculous work on the cross is bringing about in you and me. 
If you're in Christ, you're on your way to becoming that beautiful bride. Paul wrote this letter to see that those who made up the bride in Galatia did not become sullied by thinking that keeping the law added anything to what Christ has done for us. He did not want to see the work of the Spirit done through him reversed because of false teaching. Jesus and just Jesus is his message. He didn't want them sidetracked depending on religious routines. Fix your eyes on the groom and his great love for you and only then will we participate in him with him in the good works led by the Spirit that he planned in advance for us to do. You know, in the book of Revelation, Satan's referred to as the accuser of the brethren. We have enough struggle recognizing that when we stumble, we are still under the grace of God, that what he did for us was enough. Imagine adding the laws of Moses on top of that. Oh no, I didn't wash my hands before I ate. Oh no, there's a piece of pork in my meal. Oh no, I walked more than 2,000 paces on Sunday. You know, imagine the burden that would put on them, put on us. What a burden. Grace is Paul's gospel. And it's not a gospel to do as you please, but rather it's good news that Jesus paid it all. The grace of God motivates and empowers us to passionately want to walk in the spirit and live a life that glorifies the one who is so abundantly gracious to us. Paul's message is grace. Thank God for grace. Live in that grace. Relish that grace. But let that grace also draw your heart to him in gratitude. Amen? Amen. Let's close with prayer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you picked this guy that had so much zeal. Thank you for filling that vessel with, with this revelation that what you said was true. It is finished. The debt is paid. Thank you for his recognition that Abraham, David, all the patriarchs came to you in faith, trusting what you would do for them and that it's just as true today. Lord, help us to come to you in faith and humble ourselves to receive what you did for us. Give us a revelation of the depth of our depravity so that we would be desperate to make that great exchange. Thank you, Lord. We will never thank you enough. And we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. God bless you.